Welcome to the Get Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Liz McGavro, and I'm obsessed with all things writing, creativity, and telling your stories in your authentic voice, because I believe a good story can change the world. Ever since I was a little girl with my nose in a book, I dreamed of being an author. I wanted to see my books in bookstores everywhere. I wanted to talk about books. I wanted to soak up everything about the craft. My celebrity crushes were mostly authors and I could feel in my bones that the writer's life was my destiny. Fast forward to today. Along with my alter ego, Kate Conti, I'm an Agatha Award-nominated best-selling author with three mystery series, but it wasn't all smooth sailing along the way. I experienced many setbacks, crushing self-doubt, a lot of career detours, and I even lost my voice a few times when I let the world get in my way. Until I learned that writing was so much more than just a skill set you learned and developed over time. It's also an inside job that flourishes when you heal all the wounds that are stifling your creativity, which is no easy task. So if you're a writer of any kind, or if you've always wanted to write but aren't sure where to start, this is the place for you, my friend. We're gonna talk about all things writing process, craft, strategies to help you get writing and stay writing, the daunting world of agents, editors, and publishing, And because I'm using my authentic voice, I'm going to throw in a little woo-woo for you too. So let's get writing, shall we? Welcome to the Get Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Liz McGavro, and I have an awesome conversation for you today. I'm talking to author Matt Witten, who I just met, and I'm totally floored that our paths haven't crossed yet. Matt's written many things, but he's written Cozy Mysteries. He won an Agatha Award in the past. He's currently writing thrillers, but he's also a longtime playwright and TV writer, and I'm just fascinated by his journey and some of the things he's done. So we talk a lot about how writing TV shows and novels isn't all that different and how to break into TV. We also have an awesome sidebar about cozies and how they're often not taken seriously, whether it's a novel or an adaptation for TV or film, which is something that's been on my mind a lot lately. And I'm so glad that this came up in our conversation. So I really enjoyed this one. Matt's smart and funny and he knows his stuff. He is like an expert on TV writing and all of the things that go into it. So I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Here's his bio. Matt Witten is a TV writer and novelist who's written for House, Pretty Little Liars, Law and Order, CSI Miami, and several other shows. His six novels include The Necklace, which came out from Ocean View Publishing last year and has been optioned for film by Leonardo DiCaprio. How cool is that? Matt's won a Malice Domestic Award and has been nominated for two Edgars and an Emmy. His latest novel is Killer Story, which is set in the world of true crime podcasting. He's currently writing a pilot for NBC. So I don't want to make you wait any longer. Let's get into it. Well, Matt, welcome to the Get Writing Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Liz. It's great to be here. So you have an impressive writing career spanning plays, novels, TV. I'm totally in awe. So tell us how you got started and talk about your career for us. Well, I started out as a writer when I was in first grade. I wrote poetry. 
I uh, lived in Baltimore, so I wrote poems about how the Baltimore Orioles were going to defeat the hated New York Yankees. <laughs> Love that was it. My, <laughs> that was my main issue in life. Uh, <laughs> then when I was in 10th grade, I had a crush on my high school drama teacher, and she uh, suggested that I wrote a, write a play, so I did, and uh, became a playwright. And uh, did that uh, all the way through my uh, 30s. And then... Uh, it hit me that my favorite form of recreation was to put my feet up, uh, get a nice mystery, have a cup of tea, and read. And I like that even more than going to see plays or movies. So I decided, well, what if I try writing one of those? Uh, so I did. And uh, uh, like you say, it won a Malice Domestic Award. Uh, and um, yeah, I loved going to uh, Malice Domestic. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I went for about four years while I was writing the novels and met a lot of great people. And then uh, some agent in Hollywood saw one of my plays in uh, L.A., and he called me up and he said, I'm going to make you a star. He literally said that. I love so, it. I wish someone would call me and say that. <laughs> <laughs> he also used the word synchronicity, which made me think he was a nut, because at that time I had never heard the word synchronicity. I was living in upstate New York and had never heard it. I later found out that everybody in Hollywood at that time was using the word synchronicity, and he would have been an outlier if he didn't use it. Uh, but in any case, he said he would make me a star, and I, I won't say he did that, but uh, he and, uh, and my manager uh, helped me get started. I wrote a freelance episode of Homicide, wrote a freelance episode of Law and Order, got onto staff on Law and Order, and then uh, I've been writing for TV for 20 years. And uh, in the last five years, I've also decided to uh, go back. I would call it my first love, but I guess playwriting was my first love and novel writing was my second, but it's the one that seems to have stuck with me. So I went back to my second love and I started writing novels again. And uh, this time around, uh, I guess my tastes have changed a little bit. I didn't write so much the cozy uh, uh, books as uh, thrillers. So my two latest books, Killer Story and The Necklace, are uh, thrillers. Uh, psychological thrillers uh, and, and mysteries. And uh, so that's what I'm doing now, although I will add one thing, which is I have uh, dipped my toe back into the uh, cozy waters because I, I just finished writing a uh, uh, screenplay, a movie for Hallmark uh, Mystery Movies uh, based on a cozy called uh, A Dark and Stormy Night by Julia Buckley. So this has been my, my return to Cozy World, which I've really enjoyed. I, I loved her book and I I love uh, writing it for Hallmark. Okay, I love this. We have so much to dig into here because I know that TV writing is is going to be a huge point of interest for everyone listening. Um, but before we get there, tell me, so did you always want to write cozies or did you, was it something you fell into? And then how did you like decide to make that shift to, to thrillers? I know you said your tastes have changed, but like, how did you get to both of those places? Well, I started writing cozies because I was uh, reading a lot. And uh, the ones that kind of inspired me were uh, by Bill Kreider, mm -hmm. uh, who wrote uh, Cozy Set in Texas. And uh, then some uh, by, um, I don't know if they were Cozy's exactly, but by Bill Fitzhugh. They were, they were uh, humorous uh, amateur sleuth novels. And, um, and then there was a suburban guy from New Jersey named John Katz that wrote some. And they were all Cozy's with, with male protagonists. And I, I really enjoyed those. And, and, and so I wrote mine that also has a male protagonist. Uh, 
and some of the other writers that I would read at that time, uh, I had just read everybody, you know, that was that was au courant back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. And, um, you know, like I said, I just enjoyed reading them. So that's that's what I did. And I wrote a series of cozies with um, with a character, you know, who was a lot like me, you know, the classic, like me, but smarter, funnier and better looking. And uh, he lived in Saratoga Springs, New York, where I did. He was married to a woman who was a professor of English at the local community college, like me, and like like my wife, and um, with two kids, boys who were age three and five, like our kids. So I didn't have to do a lot of research for this book. Mm-hmm. Um, had a lot of time, a lot of fun writing them. Um, killed off all the people that really annoyed me, like the elementary school principal at my kids' school. And... Uh, <laughs> Then recently, when I got into writing thrillers, it, you know, it wasn't, I don't think, a conscious decision. But I read a newspaper article about in, in 2012 about a woman from uh, upstate New York, a diner waitress, who was traveling to North Dakota to witness the execution of the man who was convicted of killing her um, daughter uh, 20 years previously. And she didn't really have enough money to get to North Dakota. And... She couldn't, she couldn't fly because of a medical condition. So she held a fundraiser at a local bar to raise money for her to travel to North Dakota to witness this uh, execution of the guy who had killed her daughter 20 years previously. And this character just stuck in my head, you know, her dedication or something about her. I put it, that article up on my bulletin board next to my desk, and it, it was there for about uh, seven years. And I thought about the character that whole time. I couldn't figure out a plot. And one day I went uh, to a coffee shop with a friend of mine, John Henry Davis, and I told him uh, all of this. And he said, well, he said, I know what your plot is. And I said, please tell me what's my plot. I've been looking for it for seven years. And he said, I think she is going to find out something on her journey, journey to North Dakota that makes her think, oh, my gosh, maybe the guy who's about to be killed on Saturday at 530 is actually innocent. And maybe the real killer is still out there. And uh, when I heard that, I said, no, I don't think so. That sounds, I don't know. But then by the next morning, I knew he was right. Um, so I wrote it. So it's just, you know, whatever you write, it's just following your heart. I love that. That's so, I, it's, and it's amazing, right, how, how long sometimes these things take. I was just talking to, to another writer about a book I've been working on for many years. Um, and the plot has evolved. I've, you know, gone back and it's a book that, you know, is not contracted yet. And I've been trying to write it in between the the cozies that I am contracted for. And I mean, this, this book's been kicking around for a long time. The characters have been kicking around and the plot keeps evolving, but it's just something that I can't put down. So I feel like in some form it has to be written. So you're making yeah. me feel better that it took seven years for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, eight or nine, if you include the time spent writing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> Cause I think I'm already beyond that, but I mean, in, in fairness, I've written it a few times. It's just going through a lot of rewrites. So all right so let's go back to television for a little bit so i think you know it's really a big thing right now like there's so many good shows on as opposed to you know maybe 20 years ago right so aside from the opportunity what do you think makes television such an exciting medium for writers i guess uh you know it can be visceral that you see something instead of uh reading it um sometimes it can have more of an, of an emotional impact on people if they actually see the characters live so i think that's um 
I think that's I think that's why people enjoy you know watching television and sometimes uh, sometimes even prefer to reading. Um, and I guess you know I think all the reasons that you would that you would think of that people get attracted. You know, it pays a lot of money. Um, a lot of people watch it, so it's fun. You become part of the cultural conversation. Um, and um, uh, I think I think those are the reasons. Um, some stories are just really well suited to TV, and some are really well s- sorted to novels, and some are better sorted for uh, better for movies, and some are better for uh, stage plays. And I think when um, well, it's, it's like speaking for myself because I've written all of those. You know, whenever I have an idea, I think you know what what genre, what medium would it be best in? Mm. Uh, yep. So I prefer, I mean, I, I really gravitate towards TV cause I think I, I do like the, you know, the series aspects. Um, I read a lot of novels that are, that are series. I, I like to watch shows that take place over multiple seasons. Cause I feel like you get to know the characters, you want to know what they're doing next. So how do you approach developing those characters over multiple seasons? I, that's that's a really good point as, as to why people like TV. By the way, they just like to see the characters in their home and see them grow and develop. Just just what you said. Um, so I guess any any project that has that that potential is is really uh, is really good. Uh, you know, for me, I sometimes get a little. It's hard for me to stick with the series. You know, mm-hmm. I will like okay, I get the essence of the character. I like that. I like that character. I like that show. Um, but like, I feel like I know, know her well enough and I don't need to keep seeing the show. I get the point. I'll move on, you know, do something else. Um, so, you know, everybody has different feelings about it as to how I work on developing, uh, you know, a character for, for a long range series. Uh, let me think about the times I've been involved in that. Well, you know, with, with pretty little liars, I came in, uh, the second season and, uh, at the beginning of the season, we, uh, had had big whiteboards up on the wall in the writers' room, and we plotted out who would be the, the the prime mystery suspect for the first six to eight episodes of the twenty-four show season, and who would then um, be the prime suspect for the next six or eight, and who would be the prime suspect after that. So we tried to get a sense of how it would you know rise and fall because because you always. You always want people in the background as, as suspects, but you also want, want a main one. So we would think about how to keep the train running for one character, then another character, then another character. So we do that. And then we'd also, on a different whiteboard, on a different wall, we would have, okay, what's going to happen with Hannah's relationship with Caleb? Hannah was one of the pretty little liars. Hannah's relationship with Caleb over the period of the, of the 24 episodes. And we would think how how that would rise and fall. And maybe Hannah gets interested in someone else for a little bit, but you know, not that long. And then, uh, we would do the same with the, all the, all of the girls primary relationships. And then with, uh, a couple of the mothers and, uh, and a couple of the other characters, we would also do that. So, uh, so that's one thing. And then, then I would say, you know, I just wrote a pilot for NBC and that was, uh, thinking about, you know, season one, I mean, when I pitched the pilot, I had season one, you know, in, in great detail. And then I had season two in minor detail. I kind of know what would happen. And then season three in in less detail. And then I think you just kind of hope that you can figure out <laughs> what's going to happen you know, mm-hmm. after that. You just try to have faith. And you also know that at that point, you're going to have a whole 
writer's room if, uh, to, uh, to work with you on it. So, you, you know, you're, you're not alone in it. I, I know that every writer that creates a series is convinced that they don't have enough material for a series. Like the first year of House, the creator of House, David Shore, was like terrified that he wouldn't have enough diseases that they could keep the show going. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, every, every showrunner, they talk about it. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, if you read his interviews, he says, I mean, a show about nothing, there's no way that's going to last. So um, anyway, so that's I try to keep that in mind when I think about series that everybody goes through those fears. Yeah, with the exception of having a whole writer's room to help you out, I think it's similar for for novelists writing a series, right? You kind of start out with an idea of, you know, you're thinking about it in, in the form of your contract. So either a two or a three book contract and what's the arc. And then you kind of think about the different endings that could happen based on whether it gets picked up again or not. And then you kind of hope and pray if you do get picked up again, that you've got the next three built out enough that you're, that you're able to carry it forward. So that's really interesting. And I think that's yeah. a fun way to think about plotting too, even for, for a novelist, you know, the, the whiteboard, I've been thinking a lot about the whiteboard. I have a friend who does, um, she, she, she's an expert plotter. And whenever we plot together, she uses post-it notes and, and all of that. And I, I like the idea of the different whiteboards with the, you know, character over here and the subplot over here. And I, I think that's a cool way to also think about novels. Yes. And if you work with your friend, uh, there are um, like digital whiteboards you can use. And I used one on the NBC show with, with my co-writer, Charlie Craig. I forget the name of the, of the website, but it, but it was good. It, it was the equivalent of a whiteboard. It was the equivalent of, of post-its, but in a, in a digital form. And you could, you could do, it, it, was, it was a good way to work. Yeah. But uh, yeah, for me, the hardest thing about plotting, and I noticed this when I was on the TV show JAG, is lots of times, lots of stories, you're trying to keep the main couple apart, you know, and you can only find so, so many obstacles that are going to keep them apart. So with, when I was on JAG, it was maybe, I don't know, the eighth season. It was like, got to be ridiculous already. You know, it's clear that these, uh, these two characters should be together. So why aren't they, you know, come on already. Yeah. And it got a little synthetic and silly. So um, anyway, to me, that was the, the hardest part of, uh, of uh, plotting out a, a long-term series. Yeah, and then when they do get together, sometimes you feel like you can't sustain the momentum of what kept people coming back, right? Because now it's like, oh, now they're in a relationship and what's, you know, there's not, right. there's not that tension anymore. So you have to find new ways to bring them tension. And they end up having really complicated lives. <laughs> so I've seen that in a couple books. I won't name them, but there are a couple book series that I definitely felt lost steam after the couple got together. Yeah, for sure. So there's so many really good shows out there today. Like I, I have a whole list going. I mean, I've watched a lot of shows during the pandemic, like who, who hasn't, right? But I still have this huge list of shows that I haven't gotten to yet. So with all of the things to choose from, what do you think makes a show truly great, like a series? And how do you kind of strive to achieve that as you're, as you're writing? Well, you know, I know it's a cliche, but I think it's such an accurate one is that we, we fall in love with the characters and, and that's why we're, we watch the show. Or I suppose if the show is an anti-hero, you get completely intrigued by the characters and that's why you watch. Uh, so I think that's that's it. I think, um, I think, you know, when I think about creating a show, I guess, so I mean, it's a related question. Um What's the central conflict that these uh, that these characters have? Um, and I, I think it's good if they have a really uh, uh, gripping, you know, central uh, conflict. Um, 
I always think also in terms of if a show is um, has conflict like on the on the intrapersonal level inside the person and interpersonal level uh, with another character and also uh, conflicts on the social level. So I feel like if a show has those three levels, it's going to be a deep show. And the example I always think of is the show uh, Empire, which had a, a terrific uh, a, a woman lead character. Um, and she it worked great on the three levels because she had been in prison for, I believe it was 17 years, and she was just coming out of prison. And she has... And, and, and she's involved in this in this big uh, record company that her husband has that is tremendously tremendously successful, and so it operates on three levels. And one is she just feels terrible inside herself for having you know abandoned. She felt like she abandoned, especially her son, her youngest son, who she was very close to, and she had in a way abandoned him by being in prison for all those years. And so she just feels just, you know, terrible about herself. And you can see it. She's trying to make restitution, make amends to him and to everybody else, uh, her other kids. Um, so that was really strong. And then she has, you know, these tremendous interpersonal conflicts between her and her husband and her son and everybody else in her life. And also there's a so the societal social conflict of her fighting uh, sexism in, in society and in the, the music industry. And also racist, she's black, also racism in the in the society, in the music industry. So you got all things, three, three levels going on at once. And I, I think it made it a really deep show. So, um, so anyway, I think uh, characters, uh, uh, gripping central conflict are, are the two main things I think about. Hmm. So what is, what's your favorite right now that you're binging or, or are you binging anything? Well, the NBA playoffs, <laughs> <laughs> not a good plot line though. <laughs> It's, it is surprising. I, I, I will say that it's uh, you know you never know what to expect, which is the best thing about live sports. In terms of dramas, well, what's the one I was most recently obsessed by? Um, maybe Queen's Gambit. I was obsessed mm. by that one. That's um, a good one. Yeah, yeah, very good one. And uh, for an antihero, I thought you was pretty impressive. I watched the first three seasons of that. I thought that was good. Cool. So I haven't written for TV yet, but I'm assuming that you have a lot of people giving input. So aside from, you know, the, the different writers in the writer's room, um, you've got the showrunner, you've got producers and directors. So how do you balance all of those inputs? Uh, you do your best. I mean, that's the biggest uh, psychological challenge, I think, for a writer is, you know, there's some writers that are stubborn and can't really take notes and get to uh, uh, self uh concerned or obsessed or whatever so they just can't take notes and then there, there's some that like they lose they lose their sense of what they care the most about and 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 when somebody gives them notes they 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 almost take it too much to heart they 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 just they, they can kind of lose themselves and, and become confused mm -hmm. so you have to be like have the right amount of, <laughs> of self-esteem or at least pretend you have the right amount of self-esteem and uh, work your way through it um so I guess I, I try to always remember what my initial passion was, you, you know, like when I, when I have a, whether it's a show or a, or, or a novel or, a, or, or an episode of a show, I, I write down, you know, in a sentence and then in a paragraph, what, what, what the show's about, what the novel is about. And I just try to remember to stick to that. And, and I, and I go back to it periodically during the process, just so I have a, you know, just so I don't lose the forest for the trees, just so I can remember, here's what I'm, I'm really trying to say. And beyond that, 
you know, I've just been doing it long enough that I just listen to what, you know, the different people have to say. And there are a lot. There are producers, there are there are studios, there are executives, and they all have their different opinions. And and, uh, and sometimes they really are different from each other. And um, that's another thing. You have to accept that and not get angry. I was in a situation where the studio gave us a bunch of notes. They turned out to be very uh, different from what the network really wanted. The studio's job is to kind of know what the network wants and help you out with that. They got it wrong. And, you know, you just have to say, okay, you know, nobody's perfect. Yeah, they cost me, you know, two or three weeks of my of my work life where I had to, you know, totally turn things around. But, you know, nobody's perfect. You know, I don't I don't really have I don't know. I just I just listen. I just listen to what they have to say. I, the same things you might hear, you know, if you're in a writer's group, the same advice you might get about being in a writer's group. You listen to what people have to say. I, I don't respond right away. I don't say why they're wrong or what I was trying to achieve or what I was trying to do. I just listen carefully, take down the notes, and uh, then maybe the next day, uh, whether they're written or verbal, the next day I might, you know, email them or call them and say, you know, love your notes. Oh, and I always try to express appreciation for notes because having given notes many times, I know how hard it is. So I always try to express appreciation for the notes that I really like. And then I'll, then I'll say, you know, this one, I'm, you know, I'm trying to execute this note and, um, you know, I'm getting a little stuck because it seems like when I do X, that means it messes up Y. So, um, so, you know, so then, you know, people know that I'm being serious about their notes and, and sometimes they figure out a way to have both X and Y happening right. Or sometimes they'll say, oh, you're right. You know, X isn't really, we don't need that. Forget about X. So, um, it, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's the biggest challenge, but, you know, I also try to be grateful, you know, these guys are pretty good. You know, everybody fetches or complains about uh, network executives and, um, and all the experience that I've had with them. I could think of maybe, you know, two times where they really caused serious damage to a show that I was on, maybe even caused a cancellation because their notes were so bad. Hmm. The other times they've been useful. So how much of a voice does the writer get in a situation like that where there's all, you know, multiple opinions and, you know, people are, maybe there's a real deadlock. Does the writer get a, a decent amount of say or does it always fall to the executives? Well, in a show that you're creating, that you're writing the pilot for, um, yeah, I mean, people take you very seriously. You're the writer. It was your idea. Um, but, you know, if the executive says, like, I just wrote this pilot for NBC and it's set in the future, it has like uh, there's one strain of it is about the cops in the future. And then there's another strain that's about the revolutionaries in the future. And then there's another strain about the equivalent of the CIA in the future. And so in our pilot, we were trying to make, you know, all three things happening equally. And that was one where the studio said, yeah, have all three things happening equally. We got to this to the network level. And the network people said, no, we want a cop show set in the future. So it became a cop show with, you know, with a little bit of revolutionaries, a little bit of CIA, but here's the cops. And, um, you know, it was a different show. Uh, I, I liked it. It was a, it was a somewhat different show. So did, did we have a choice? Yeah, we could have said no. We could have said, oh, no, we see it as a three, three prong thing. And then, you know, it would have had no chance at all for the network to pick it up. You know, that's mm -hmm. the way it is. Um, and, uh, you know, when it's an existing show, uh, you know, if it's a hit, the executives tend to be pretty respectful of the head writer. They figure, okay, it's been around for a year or two years, three years, head writer knows what they're doing. 
you know, we'll give them, we'll give them some leeway. If it's a new show, the executives are a little bit more hands-on. And um, I'll tell you my funniest story. So this, this is one where, like I say, usually you're happy with the executives. Um, or, or reasonably, I don't know, usually I am. I feel like, ah, okay, they can be annoying, but they're probably sort of right. Okay, this one really annoyed me. I was on a show called Women's Murder Club. And uh, the, the show, um, we had an idea in the first episode that we were going to start with a uh, serial killer that would, um, that, would, that would be throughout the whole season. And then at the end of season one, our hero, Angie Harmon, would, would defeat the serial killer. So, so episode one is Angie Harmon and her colleagues uh, solve a murder. And that's great. But then at the end of it, there's another murder victim who's been killed by the kiss me not killer. Oh, my God. And we end act one with Angie Harmon saying something to the effect of, by God, if it's the last thing I do, I'm going to take down the kiss me not killer. And so, okay, if you're an audience, you figure episode two, we're going to see a little bit of the kiss me not killer, get a taste of it. Okay, but in between episode one and two, the... um, the executives at the network decided, no, this should be really cozy. The Kiss Me Not Killer is like too dark, you know, for this for this series. So forget the Kiss Me Not Killer. So episode two had no Kiss Me Not Killer. Episode three had no Kiss Me Not Killer. And episode four came along. So it was weird. Episode four came along. I wrote it. And I was on the set the very first day. And Angie Harmon was reading the, uh, the script. And... Uh, and she read the script and, and, and she finished it. She looked up at me and she said, oh, I see no kiss me, not killer. And I said, yeah, that's right. And she nodded and she said, wouldn't want too many viewers now, would we? <laughs> <laughs> and I so agreed with her and I so wanted to tell her, but of course I couldn't. No, all the writers in the writer's room think we should have the kiss me, not killer. We're going kind of nuts that this kiss me, not killer, you know, isn't there. And the network uh, told us we had to. And this, but of course, you can't say that. So anyway, the show goes on and um, it gets OK ratings, um, like not a lock to be renewed, but not like, oh, this is going to be not renewed. It was on the on the cusp, on the bubble. So then the strike happens. This was 2007. And um, during the strike. Uh, the executives have lots of time to talk to the guy who wrote the novels that we were based on, who was James Patterson. And they had a lot of time to think things through. And they decided that the reason we hadn't gotten better ratings was because we had been too cozy. <laughs> we, we, hadn't, we hadn't been dark enough. And, and, and so the day the strike ended, they, they, they fired uh, the, the three head writers of the show, uh, terrific writers. Um, and they brought in two other people who happened to be terrible writers. Um, I'm being so unpolitic, but I don't care. You know? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love the behind the scenes. <laughs> so they brought in these two terrible, terrible writers. And, um, and I guess they were told, you know, to start with the Kiss Me Not Killer again. So finally, after like this interregnum, you know, the Kiss Me Not Killer suddenly remakes an appearance. And, uh, and there were three more episodes left in the season. Instead of having 22, we only had 13 because of the strike. And um, so that was good. We had the Kiss Me Not Killer. But these writers were so terrible. The whole franchise for the show was the idea that four women would work together to solve murders. Uh, a cop, a lawyer, a reporter, and an ME, medical examiner. And these 
guys decided that really the other three women characters weren't that interesting. The most interesting thing was the relationship between Angie Harmon and her ex-husband, which was like, this is women's murder club. I don't get it. And, 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 and so I saw the outline that they were working on, or we were for the first episode, you know, the 11th episode. And, um, I said, interesting. You know, we always thought that the franchise of the show was that in every episode, each of these four women would do something brilliant and together would solve the murder. But I see only Angie Harmon does something brilliant. Somehow these writers had never gotten that that was an element of all the 10 shows. I don't know if they'd ever even seen it, hmm. but, uh, if they did, they, they blew it off. And then this one guy said to me, oh, so that's really what you, what you do. Oh, that's it. Just hadn't noticed it. So then I'll just complain a little bit longer. I, I hope this story isn't too uh, whatever, but I'm bringing up a lot of feelings. So then, um, so then in the first episode, the 11th episode, they had this, they end an act. An act is the interval between commercials. They end an act with this one character is, um, is shot. And oh my God! And she, he, I don't even remember if it's he or she, but this character is one of our heroes. Oh my God! Are they are they going to be dead? And then in the next act, it starts out with, oh, it's just a flesh wound. You know, they weren't injured at all. And that's like a classic example of the expression would be schmuck bait. Um, it's it's bait to get the schmucks, this dumb schmucks who are watching the TV show, to come back after the act. It's just like bad writing. Mm-hmm. It's just like creating a false. Ah, and then it turns out to be nothing. Okay, so that's bad. Then, in this, in the next episode, the twelfth episode, they did the exact same thing for an act break. It was a different character. The exact same thing. Oh my God, no imagination at all. So, you know, in writing for an hour-long show, um, uh, you know, especially before TiVo, this was in two thousand seven. You know, you you would want your numbers to go up at the half hour mark. Say your show starts at ten or nine o'clock. You know, at ten thirty, nine thirty, where conceivably people, if they're bored by your show, could switch to a sitcom. You want them to stick with your show. And every show that I ever wrote or that I was ever involved in, like I was on the show and other people wrote it, the number would either stay the same or commonly more commonly go up a tiny bit at the half hour mark. People would leave a sitcom watching a sitcom and then they'd come to your show at the half hour mark and they'd keep watching. So it would go up a tiny bit or stay the same, but usually go up a tiny bit. The 11th episode, the first that these guys worked on, it went down 31%. And then the second episode also went down in the 30% and the thir- the 13th one also did. Um, anyway, so that's my, uh, that's my, my rant about this. It all started from, um, not just having the faith in our show from the very beginning, the executives not having the faith and our not being able to to counter them and say, yeah, it's a cozy show. It's about these women, but also give them something, you know, serious to do, you know, give them, give them something. And, you know, Angie Harmon was right. A little bit, a little bit of darkness to balance the light, you know, was what the, what the show needed. And James Patterson and the executives at the network were right that we did need a little bit more darkness, but Anyway, that was that. Uh, that was that mess. Usually, I've been on shows that um, that uh, the relationship between the executives. You know, always get a little. You all, as a writer, you always get a little bit ticked off at them because they're kind of telling you what to do. But they they tend to be pretty smart people too. So, how did the head writers end up taking the hit for that? If they wanted to take the show in the direction that it turned out, they ended up trying to take after. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I would just. 
I'll, I'll just give you a short answer. That's the TV biz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just not working the way we want. People are kvetching. You had all these executives. The strike lasted 100 days. There's nothing for them to do. So what do they do? They say, oh, let's fire the head writers and bring in somebody else. That's their solution to the thing. And I, I'm sure the executives who worked on the show um, – are not going to say to, what was his name, Steve McPherson? They're not going to say to the head of ABC, who did get involved in this, they're not going to say to the head of the network, no, actually, we're the ones that said it should be lighter. We're the ones that said it should be cozy. I'm sure they were saying, oh, 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 yeah, you know, we, we, we told the writers, you, you know, we, we need, we, I don't know why they got rid of the Kiss Me Not Killer. I can't understand it. Hmm. So I'm sure it was that kind of thing. Yeah. So do you think that there's a, there's a balance between how many people want something more cozy. This is so as a current cozy writer and, you know, have a lot of friends who write cozies and, and I, and, and a lot of my friends are also trying to break into other types of writing. We come up, we come up against this a lot, right? There's, you, you get kind of in this cozy box and then it, you know, it doesn't seem like it's easy to break out of that. Is the same true for, for TV shows or, or, you know, do you think people are looking there? There's a, um, a similar amount of people who are looking for something cozy, or do you think the trend is towards something darker? And and how do you kind of balance that? I think, I think there's a place for everything, you know, with Hallmark, you know, mysteries specifically, that's obviously a place for cozy mysteries. And I think that um, they were kind of, if I understand correctly, they were kind of down playing their mysteries for maybe a year or two, and then they've decided to bring them back up again. So I Mm -hmm. think uh, Hallmark mysteries are going to be a good place for cozies. Um, I think, I, I, I think there's a place for everything. I, I don't, I don't know what, what the trends are in society at large. So, so I can't, I can't really say, I mean, do you see cozy mysteries on TV? The new one on, uh, which I've been meaning to watch, uh, poker, poker face or whatever it's called on Peacock. Have you seen that? Would that classify? I think that qualifies cozy. I haven't seen it. No, I haven't actually heard of it. It's, it's by the guy that did, um, last on last on yeah, so he, he created this one on Peacock, and I, I haven't seen it. I've been meaning to, but I, I think that would qualify as a cozy. Mm-hmm. I think there are a fair number of cozies on TV. If if you if you look long enough, uh, I think you can find them. Yeah, do you, it seems like you know, like everything goes through cycles. So there's um, right now. I feel like so cozies kind of were hot and heavy in the in the book world, right? A, f- a few years ago, and now it seems like they're going through a little bit of a downturn. Um, and maybe if the the shows and the movies come back, maybe the books are going to start to perk up again. I, I don't know. Have you noticed any? Well, I mean, the one thing that I would say, the one thing I do feel strongly is that, um, you, you know, cozies, you know, often really deal with, you know, very serious uh, social issues mm-hmm. and are, are very uh, um, important and, and relevant in the culture. And I think because of the, the package, yes. you, you know, that, that they come in, people don't, you, you know, fully understand that. Yes. And, um, you, you know, I, I mean, I think that's true of women's art, you, you know, in general, um, that, that historically it's been a little bit um, downplayed as to how important it truly is. And um, so I think cozies are an example of that. I, I know when I was writing cozies, I, I wrote four of them. And I felt like... Um, one of them in particular was just a very serious uh, a book about uh, the educational system and how it uh, doesn't always, uh, how it sometimes fails people who, kids who are a little unusual, uh, be it uh, in the book, it, it was uh, gifted kids or kids with ADHD uh, or, or kids, uh, kids who are uh, low income. 
Um, those are like some of the categories of kids that, that the book talks about. And oh, and it was about test scores too. It was about how test scores, uh, standardized test scores, have become too important in 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 our in our educational system and and have uh, wasted a lot of time for teachers and kids. And um, and you know, I think it's still relevant today. Actually, it's twenty years later. But you you know, it's like people don't exactly review it in the same way or, or look at it in the same way. It's a cozy. It has this cute cover. Uh, anyway, so I, I think I think they're much more important uh, than, than people tend to realize. Um, so will they come back again? Uh, I don't know. I will say this. It's it's amazing how many people uh, have come to me when they found out I was writing a Hallmark mystery movie, and they all say, oh, that's our secret pleasure. You know, that's our that's our guilty pleasure. And it's 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 interesting that even people that that read them or watch them think, oh, they're nothing. They're just they're just fluff. I remember when I wrote for Law and Order, and I was I was writing cozies at the time. People on the on the TV show, the other writers, would like sort of say, "Oh, cozies are so unrealistic. They're so silly." And I was I I would always you know be thinking, Law and Order is pretty unrealistic. Hmm. So, for instance, I'll tell you my favorite unrealistic part of Law and Order. Like every episode I ever wrote or, or watched, there's always a scene. I think every single one where the cops are with the suspect in the interrogation room or interview room, and the suspect's lawyer is sitting right there next to him. And the the detective says to the to the to the to the to the criminal or the accused, the accused, they say, were you there on the night of blah blah blah? And the guy starts to answer and the lawyer says, Don't answer. And then the cop asks another question. And then the guy starts to answer, and his lawyer says, "Don't answer." And the cops ask another question, and the guy starts to answer, and the guy, his defend, his def- lawyer says, "Don't answer." He says, "No, I have to answer this anyway," and he answers. There's some version of that scene in every single episode. Well, okay, in real life, that scene never happens, never ever happens. There's that scene. There's never a scene where the cop is in the room with the defendant and the lawyer, and they have a discussion, and the lawyer's got, the defendant's going to talk, the lawyer says, no, it just never happened, nothing about that ever happens. The lawyer says to the guy, don't talk, and then the cop talks to the lawyer. I mean, it's just, or it, th- that scene never happens, ever, ever, ever. So it's weird. So anyway, that's what I would say. It's like, uh, oh, you're writing these cozies, they're just kind of, you know, silly, and, you know, oh, amateur sleuth, ha, ha, ha. But like, you know, every single genre or or subgenre has you know a million th- areas where we futz with the truth so matt i love that we're having this conversation because i felt this way about cozy since i started writing them um and you know i i, I actually never saw myself when i was just starting out as as a cozy writer it just wasn't something that had occurred to me because i was you know i always read very dark um, and i remember listening to dennis lehane who's an all-time favorite of mine and you know i one thing he said really stood out to me when I started writing my, my cozies. And he said, you know, make sure your book is always about something, no matter the genre, you know, no matter what you're trying to do, make sure it's about something. And I really took that to heart. And, you know, a lot of my books have, um, animal themes, but I approach it from a way of, you know, I've been doing animal rescue for many years. Um, it's something that's, you know, a very serious problem in this country, the way people treat animals and, you know, what rescuers have to deal with when they're trying to save them and, you know, all the things. Right. And so 
but my books always have cats usually right on the covers. And so now it's just like, I'm known as the cat girl and there's no, there's no notion of any depth to it at all. It's just, Oh, she likes cats. (laughs) Right. And I know my readers don't see it that way, but I think the general, um, like you said, the general consensus about cozies is they're just fluffy and they have a lot of cats in them. Right. And so it's kind of, it can be a little disheartening when you're trying to actually make a book really good and make it about something that impacts society. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It, yeah, it is really frustrating that that gets put in that box. But listening to a musician yesterday, uh, there was an article about her in the New York Times. I think her name was Connie Converse. And uh, she was a folk singer from, from the uh, 50s and 60s. And I'd never heard of her. She's not particularly well-known. It turns out that the people that have heard of her are pretty influential, like all these uh, famous women um, singers currently. Uh, has for, anyway, I'd never heard of her. So I just put on her album uh, yesterday. And if, if you're interested in old folk music, it's her name is Connie Converse. And it's really good. She was like a contemporary of, of Bob Dylan's. And, uh, and uh, but, you know, kind of forgotten. Actually, she has a really weird story. Here's a mystery idea for you to write. It's, um, or me for that matter, I'll race you to it. She disappeared <laughs> at the age of 50. She Ooh. was a folk singer in New York. And then she moved to Ann Arbor and became an activist. And then in, when she was 50 years old, she disappeared. Nobody knows where she went. Wow. That is a good mystery. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. All right. Well, we can collaborate. Okay. <laughs> sounds good. Let's, let's write a pilot. There we go. There we go. Um, all right. I want to go back to something you said before about schmuck bait. So I know you were talking about it in the sense of um, the acts before commercials, but how how do you... How do you avoid doing that when you're going from episode to episode so people keep coming back and knowing that they're going to get something of of substantial value versus, you know, something very dramatic that ends up not being dramatic at all? How do you get people coming back and, and um, you know, I don't know, I just write as best I can. Um, I, I think um, you, you, you try to be honest and be, um, have things you know, feel real or be real. I guess I would say a couple of things. One is that uh, when I'm, when I'm writing, um, usually it's related to a TV show, but I guess novels too. But when I'm, I'm writing a TV show, I, I, I try to think sometimes if I get stuck, especially it's like, forget that it's a TV show. What would this character actually do? You know, what would this, you know, 22-year-old guy who just got out of college is looking for his first job and he goes to rent an apartment and the person who's renting an apartment to him turns out to be this XYZ. What would he actually do in real life? And if I really just try to forget about creating drama, um, that really helps me. So is it kind of like thinking through like, like I like to think about when I'm writing a first draft. So, you know, versus what are the the big plot points that need to happen? Like what's kind of the next right action that the character needs to take to move the story along? Even if it's something just right. basic, like I have to walk the dog before I go talk to this suspect. Right. And what can happen when I'm walking the dog? Exactly. And so, yeah, to think deeply about the character is the thing. So wherever one does that, whether it's while one is hiking or whether when one is, you know, walking with a friend and just talking about the character or, you know, taking a shower or whatever, that would be the, the, um, the thing. Um, you know, one thing I really liked about Pretty Little Liars is that wacky things would happen to these girls, uh, these four girls in their, in their lives. 
Um, but the way they would react would always feel very real. And, and the, the head writer, one of the head writers of the show, Marlene King, would always focus on, we have to treat our viewers, you know, with great respect, which I appreciated, especially because, you know, many of our viewers were teenagers and you, it's one can disrespect them. And um, so it, so she would always focus on, on, on treating our, our teenage girl viewers with respect. And she would always treat the characters with respect. Well, so what would our characters actually do? And so it's kind of what I'm, what I was saying before, but it's, it's, um, it's treating everybody with respect, the characters, the viewers, and it's, and anyway, that's what I really admired about it. You know, no matter what, how crazy the circumstances were, you always felt this, that this is how real people would really be, behave in response to these circumstances. So anyway, that's another thing that I think about. Mm. So that's a good point, because speaking of real people, I, I know there's been, you know, a push for, a, you know, more diversity and representation in, in Hollywood and TV. Um, do you think that we've made strides in making TV more inclusive? And, you know, how do you think we can do better? Well, I definitely noticed it, you know, this year walking the picket lines. There are so many more people of color uh, in, in the picket lines than there were uh, back in 2007. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. So I don't know the actual stats of the employment stats, but I believe that the employment stats are, are, are much better. Um, and, uh, so how can we, how can we make things, uh, even better? Um, uh, I, I, I mean, my, I tend to think we're going in a good direction. Um, and I don't really have specific situations, suggestions on making things better. I mean, as an overall thing, I think it's really tough. Every single institution, like in the country, like we all wish it was, and we try to make them like less racist, like whether it's it's um, police departments or whether it's schools, uh, whether it's TV, uh, uh, TV networks or whatever. And... Um, I don't know. I guess we have to try it all. You know, it's it's tricky in a in a country that's racist, and it's like you look for all the ways to to you know to stop it or to go in and and like that. And I don't know. You you just you just keep keep doing it. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So streaming has definitely changed the way we interact with TV. What do you think? Do you think this has affected this, the whole storytelling landscape in either a good or a bad way? And, you know, how do you see this playing out in the future of TV? Uh, I think, you know, there've been so many really good streaming shows. I, I think it's been uh, wonderful. Um, it's nice that there are no commercials in yeah. a lot of these shows. You don't have to like write to commercials. Yep. When I wrote for house, um, it was a four act structure plus a plus a teaser, which meant that there were commercials between all of those acts, and so we often had to like end a end an act on um, on uh, like like a, a big medical crisis, you, you know, for the for the patient of the week, and so it, you know so so that it became that's what we ended the acts on. Well, the very first year before at the very beginning of the first year, the network for a while wanted it to be five acts and a teaser, which would have meant an additional commercial break, which would have essentially meant an additional medical crisis for the patient during the course of the show, which would have made the show more medical and less like inter interesting interpersonal stuff. Um, 
And I think the show was successful largely because of the interesting interpersonal stuff. And, and so the fact of, fortunately, it stayed four acts. So the fact of only having that many commercials made it a better show and a more successful show. And I think that that applies to a lot of these streaming shows. They're no longer driving toward a, toward a commercial break. And I just, I think it makes for a better show. And I also appreciate that, that the number of minutes each of these episodes are isn't, isn't set. Like on a network show, um, we, we, we needed to be 42 and a half minutes of, of, um, of airtime. Um, and it could be maybe, maybe we had a leeway. My memory is 15 seconds was the leeway. Uh, and so that means that the show can be as long as it should be. Um, and I think also shows can be hits without being seen by as many people. It used to be you had to get whatever, 10 million people or whatever it was, depending on the night, uh, to be a hit. And now you can be a hit. I mean, Netflix obviously keeps its numbers quiet. But now you can be a hit with uh, uh, successful for the show and for the network and continue with fewer viewers, which means you can have more, you know, niche shows that might, niche shows that might be very exciting but aren't as, aren't as pop. Um, so I think they've been, I think they've been, I think these, they've been great that way. You know, I think a lot of the, I mean, I honestly have not watched a broadcast network show, CBS, ABC, NBC, or Fox since the, the good wife. And, and that was, uh, uh, you know, that was years ago, it was a decade ago or more. So, I mean, that's my personal tastes is that I prefer these, these other, uh, uh shows. And uh, so for me, it's been great. Totally same. I haven't had cable in years. So I, it's interesting, though. I've, I was watching, um, I don't know if you know the show, Alaska Daily, that was on Apple TV. I think it was, no, it was Hulu. Sorry. It was Hulu with oh. Hillary Swank. And I just, yeah. and I liked it. I, but I'm a you know, former journalist, so I thought it was really interesting. I, I'm not a, you know, I'm not really into the Alaska wilderness, but it was an interesting premise and a good show. And I just read that it's not going to probably be renewed because it didn't get enough viewers, which I thought was interesting. Especially oh, with sorry. a name like Hillary Swank, <laughs> but well, uh, yeah, there are a lot of a uh, lot of great actors who are uh, who are on the screen. But yeah, that's very unfortunate. It's not coming back. I heard good things about it too. Yeah, that so journalist what... was not really. Uh, she was uh, uh, not. She didn't do all the right things all the time, right? Is that the? Uh, yeah, she. The so the premise was she was a big time reporter in New York, and she, you know, really pushed the envelope, and she got basically canceled from New York. And her, a former colleague of hers who was running a paper in Alaska, asked her to go there and work, and she didn't really have any other options, so she went. And then they they started working on a lot of cases of indigenous women who had been murdered in the state, and no one was paying attention or trying to solve the crimes. So they were um, solving some of those murders. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, my uh, my my latest thriller killer story is about a, a journalist who gets uh, laid off uh, uh, three times. So she starts a true crime podcast and tries to re uh, re reinvigorate her career. And um, and, and the, the the book is about how you know getting clicks now in the journalism uh, business can be as important in a way as getting the truth. And so she she uh, she sometimes doesn't do all the right things, but. Um, yeah, you know the one thing about Alaska always has amazed me is the book series by what's 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 the uh, what's the, the the great book series set in Alaska mystery series. Oh gosh, I don't think I know. Do I? Oh, yeah. My main, I believe that the 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 uh, protagonist is uh, indigenous indig, indigenous woman. I've read a uh, couple of books in the series, 
uh, but not for a few years. But it, but it's a great one, and I've sort of been amazed in the last few years that it hasn't been turned into a TV series yet because mm-hmm. it's very successful. There are about fifteen or twenty. I'm sure your viewers will will uh, have a better memory for names than I do. But um, uh, it, it's it, you know it's been it's been very successful, and it's it's sixteen or so books, many books, and and an indig- a good and, and indigenous uh, woman uh, main character. And uh, and a great setting. Anyway, that's always been one of the like every once in a while, there's book series that amaze me that like, why isn't this a TV show? Mm-hmm. And that would be the top of my list. Yeah, I'll have to check. I'll have to look for that. Now I'm intrigued. So, all right. So what's your favorite TV project that you've worked on? You know, here's what I've noticed. Anytime you ask a TV writer, what's the favorite project that they worked on? They will never answer you. Like, oh, this was the best show. It was the most meaningful show. It was important. They won't say, like, the best quality show. They'll say that the, the show that had, they really enjoyed the experience of working with the people. Um, and it's it's just what were their favorite collaborations. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I've had a lot of good experiences on TV and some that were uh, not so good. Um, but I would say my favorite shows that I've worked on were, were Women's Murder Club, Pretty Little Liars, a show called The Peacemakers, which you, I'm sure you haven't heard of. It only lasted about eight eight episodes, but I formed lifelong friendships from that from that show. Um, those would be my favorite favorites. Uh, I had good times on uh, Law and Order too, and House, and all these other shows. But um, those would be my favorites. Yeah, that's very cool. All right, so I'm sure the burning question at this point that people are going to have is, how do I get started in TV? if that's something that they're interested in. So I know you mentioned you had a, a manager that was separate from your writing agent. So talk about that process and how you, how you got into it. Well, I got into it because, uh, I, like I say, my, uh, a TV agent from a big agency, ICM, uh, called me up and, um, and then he, he submitted my, my plays to get me, uh, uh to get me a job. Um, and so did my manager. I was living in upstate New York at the time and my agent called me up and he said, um, I'm having trouble selling you from upstate New York. It would help if you got a manager as well. And I said, you know, what's a manager do? What's that for? And he said, well, I know half the people in Hollywood and the manager knows the other half. Um, so he got me the job, uh, uh, on law and order. Uh, so manager was useful in that way. So in terms of how to get it, so Probably a lot of your viewers, uh, you know, either have a, a literary agent, a, a novel agent, or, or they don't. They're looking for one, or hopefully we'll, we'll get one soon. Um, I guess, well, I guess I, w- I would say a couple things. And, uh, y- y- you know, hopefully, you know, your book series will get turned into a TV show. And that's, I'm, I'm sure you know, you, hopefully your, your novel agent has connections in the TV agent uh, world, and we'll get it to them. And, you know, if not, I would try to think of any connection you have, you know, your, your uncle's, um, um, receptionist or whatever is Mm -hmm. the, is the son of some famous Hollywood agent, um, use every connection you can think of in terms of getting into TV writing, um, not exactly from selling your books. The main advice that people give is to write a spec uh, TV script is to write a spec episode, a spec pilot, spec TV pilot. And what that does is it shows head writers and agents and so on 
that you know how to write a TV pilot. Not only are you a great novelist, you know how to write a TV pilot. So in order to write that spec TV pilot, um, I would uh, uh, watch a lot of TV in the genre that you're interested in. I would uh, read a book by Bill Rabkin, R-A-B-K-I-N, on how to write a pilot. And I would consider, uh, you know, taking a TV writing class. Um, uh, I, I teach them periodically at UCLA Extension, and there are a lot of good teachers there, um, and there are other good, uh, and they do it on Zoom. Um, there's a lot of other uh, uh, good good schools too, obviously. So I suggest taking a class uh, uh, as as a helpful way to start. Anyway, so write it, write it, write a TV spec pilot, and then uh, get it into the hands of an agent. And and maybe your literary agent knows somebody that can go to somebody else. The same thing. Just look for any kind of connection. Um, you can enter reputable contests, uh, and uh, I don't remember all the names of them, but I think Warner Brothers has one. I think ABC has one. I think Fox has one. Uh, so you can enter a reputable contest. Uh, if you if you live in uh, L.A. or willing to live in L.A., and if you're willing to take a very low salary, uh, you can try to get a job as a <clears throat> as a writer's assistant or a production assistant in uh, on on a show, and that's that's a good way to meet people. That's a very good way to get into it if one is able to do that. Uh, 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 that's very good. So you know, write that spec TV pilot, and then. Write another one because often one's first, you know, might not be, you know, the best, you know, one has to learn. And then after that one, you know, write a third one. And then in terms of, you know, getting a job. So the goal of all this is that, uh, is that an agent will say, oh yeah, I can sell you. And then they'll send your script to all the head writers for all the different shows that are similar to the one that you, the pilot that you wrote. And, Hopefully, then you'll get meetings with the head writers and and get to be you know a staff writer on a show. Um, so that would be the most common route. And I would say if one has two writing samples, one is a spec pilot, and the other is could be a novel, definitely could be anything, could be a stage play. Um, so that's so that's how to get on TV writing as a staff writer. To write to to successfully sell a pilot, if you have a book series, why not write a spec pilot? You know, based on your book series. I'm not saying it's like it might not not exactly. It, you know, it it could be that that the production company, if they want to turn your book series into a series, would just throw out your pilot. They might not be interested, but still, it might be a good way to start. You know, getting into the TV. You know, it might be a good like at the very least an exercise in writing a pilot and might be a really great pilot because you know the characters so well that it might be easier to write a pilot. So that might be something I would do if I had a, uh, if I, if if I had a series that I thought was, if I had a book series that I thought was TV series worthy, I might go that route. Hmm. Oh, I love that. That's a, that's a great idea. Um, how did you get the gig writing the Hallmark movie, the cozy that you were just, that you, I think that's your new project. Is that what you said? Yeah. Well, um, uh, you know, I I just got hired to write this NBC pilot, so I I I, um, I won't say I was I was hot in the TV world, but at least I was lukewarm. So uh, so my agent uh, 
talked to a Hallmark executive and he said, I had this writer, you know, Matt Witten. And, uh, uh, and the Hallmark exec was looking for a writer for, for this book by, uh, by Julia Buckley, uh, uh, Dark and Stormy Murder. So my agent gave him as a writing sample, um, uh, my screen, I wrote a screenplay for my book, The Necklace. Uh, this screenplay has been optioned by Leonardo DiCaprio, and um, that's all it is. Um, but so he gave him the screenplay, and the executive read the screenplay, liked it, and the producer, they hired an outside producer for this project, a guy named John Eskenas, and uh, he read you know, my screenplay and liked it also. So they invited me to, to pitch my ideas on how I would, I would turn the book into a, a, a TV, a Hallmark movie. So I read the book, which I enjoyed, and uh, came to the meeting. And the meeting was funny because um, I had forgotten that we were setting the meeting for Yom Kippur, which I, I fast on Yom Kippur. And uh, I don't, my IQ goes down by about, you know, 20 points with each hour that I'm fasting. <laughs> and um, I didn't want to, like, reset the meeting. I don't know why, but I think because it, it had taken, it like, it was, like, took two weeks to set this date and I didn't want to have to set the whole process going. So anyway, I pitched and, and, you know, I hadn't been eating and I felt really low IQ, but, uh, but I pitched and I guess I, I did a good job or whatever, because I was expecting that they, you know, probably, you know, were having meetings with, you know, five writers or whatever, or 10 writers, however many, and uh, that I would hear in about a month or two, whether I got the job, but I was very pleasantly surprised, you know, the very next day, to learn that I had gotten the job. Um, so awesome. I think it was a combination of the pitch and, and I know the, the producer in, uh, in particular really liked uh, the necklace. So That's awesome. All right. So tell us about your thrillers. Tell us about this necklace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the necklace is, uh, it's uh, like I say, it's based on this article about this woman who, uh, who's traveling to North Dakota to witness the execution of the guy who killed her daughter. And she finds out, you know, that's, uh, he, he might not be the God. So she's got to figure out the truth before Saturday at five 30. Cause that's when the guy is getting executed and the FBI doesn't believe her. Or her mother doesn't believe her. Nobody believes her, but this woman who's in her mid fifties and, um, has never really like done anything like this before. She's never really put herself out in this kind of way. And she also has to have the courage to, um, question everything that she's believed for the past 20 years. For 20 years, she's hated this man that, that killed her daughter, that she thinks killed her daughter. And she has to reevaluate her entire life back when she was the mom of this daughter and what, what had happened during those, those years. And she, so that, that's, that's, that's the book for me. It's a story of courage and, uh, for the, for this, uh, woman in her fifties. Um, and that's, that's what it's about. It's been published in uh, in about seven other languages. Just came out in uh, Russia. Came out in the Ukraine wow. last last month. So I, I like to p- picture Russians and the Ukrainians are are all reading the necklace. Yeah, bringing them all together. <laughs> <laughs> we would hope. So what's next for you? Well, I'm writing a a, a thriller mystery thriller right now, uh, and. Uh, having a lot of fun with it. Uh, and, uh, then I don't know what comes after that. <laughs> Hopefully something good. Yeah, no, this is awesome. So where can people find you if they want more about you and, and want to find your books? 
Uh, sure. I'm at mattwittenwriter.com and uh, no H in Witten. <laughs> and uh, my books are, you know, Amazon or, or any place else uh, you can find them. And, uh, and I don't know, they've learned plenty about me from this, from this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been super inspiring. I'm fascinated by the world of TV and by your career. And it sounds like you've got a lot of great things ahead of you. So good luck to you. And thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. And good luck with the thriller also. Thank you. So how was that, guys? I hope you listened all the way to the end and heard Matt's advice if TV writing is something that interests you or if selling your novel for a TV or film adaptation interests you. And I'm willing to bet that's interesting to most writers. It definitely is for me. So I was completely fascinated by everything he had to say. So I'd love to hear what resonated most with you on this episode. So let me know over on my IG page. Um, it's just Liz McGavro on Instagram. You'll find it along with a link to all things Matt in the show notes. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, it would be so awesome if you did. And if you liked it and wanted to leave a review, I would so appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Bye.